Well, we often hear that phrase, you must, if you're going to talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. Um, that's no less true of the Christian life. Um, but as we're going to see in the book of Ephesians, that, that talk is something that's been done for us. Right? It's one thing when you, when you talk about and maybe brag about your own achievements and accomplishments. It's uh, another thing entirely when someone else speaks of your achievements and, uh, and, and all of your accomplishments and hypes you up and builds that expectation within others about the kind of things that you can do. Uh, maybe it's a basketball, or maybe it's a chess, maybe it's dance or singing. When other people are saying to everyone else, proclaiming, no, no, this person is the best at making dumplings, then you feel like you've got to earn that. You've got to match up to that. That's more of the reality when it comes to the Christian walk and the Christian talk. You might think that, ah, oh, I just have the duty or obligation to um, do the things that I say. But as we'll see from Paul in just a moment, our calling is something that is irrespective of what we think or believe in a sense. That in fact, Paul has spent three chapters talking about the glories of being a Christian and being a part of the family of God. And he comes now to the second half of the letter to encourage us to walk according to that truth. Or one way to put it in the context of unity, it's, this is the quote in the bulletin from Johnny Erickson Tata, believers are never told to become one, we already are one and are expected to act like it. You could say that about a lot of things, right? Christians, we're told to become holy, but it's because we are holy, you could use that analogy so many places that we, we need to be what we are. Rather than speaking of talking the talk and walking the walk, instead, maybe it's better to speak of we need to act like who we really are. And so that is where we come to in the book of Ephesians after spending three chapters talking about the kind of sinners we were, the kind of blessings we have, the inheritance with Christ, the, the unity of being one person in God, both Jews and Gentiles, finally we get to uh, the, the practice of these things. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul begins, therefore, I therefore, all those profound statements about grace, you've been saved through faith, all of our statements about being made one person in Christ through the blood of Jesus, of all the many spiritual blessings, there must be a response. That's what therefore means. There must be a response to that. That's not just something to read and gloss over or read and say, oh, that, that sounds nice, and then move on to the next thing. Instead, there's a prompt. Now, Paul is quick to interject a little statement there. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Why mention this again? He, he had just mentioned it in chapter 3, verse 1. Did you forget? Oh, no, we didn't forget. Paul is certainly doing this for some kind of emphasis. Well, what's the emphasis here? Well, one is to remind them of Paul's own situation. He's reminding them the cost of living in a manner worthy of this calling, of walking the walk, of being who you are. He's reminding them of the cost of it. For him, it was imprisonment, persecution. But this also points out that Paul is still continuing to live out this calling even while he's a prisoner. So one is he's showing himself an example. You know, this is what could happen if you live out this calling in your life. But he's also saying, but being a prisoner is not an excuse not to live out this calling. If I am in here, still adjuring you, still encouraging you to live out this life while in prison. That means prison is not an excuse. And therefore, the Ephesians, therefore, we don't have an excuse either. If you can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called while you're in jail or in here, this is house imprisonment, so he's uh, chained up to another Roman guard almost constantly, very little privacy and things, if, if he can still live out his calling, then certainly you can and I can. Now, this is phrased as an urging. I urge you to walk. Um, 
the word there, if you're familiar with, uh, with a few Greek words that we, we typically bring up, bring up, this is parakaleo. Uh, parakaleo comes up all over the Bible. It can mean encourage, it can mean exhort, it can mean uh, rebuke. Even uh, at its basic, it has the word call in it. And so you, you really do see call three times in this one verse. Um, parakaleo or urge means to call, to to walk alongside, and that's why it means encouragement, is, is you're uh, walking with someone as you tell someone to do something. So his urging here is one where he's not just telling them to do something, and he's far removed. This is something where Paul's walking uh, step in step with them. And so he urges them, um, and, and another reason to urge them is that this is not, he's not commanding. He's not telling them, you, gotta, you, you have to do this. You must do this. Instead, as an urging, it's pointing out this is what any Christian ought to want to do in order to take the next step. If you're a Christian, this is what you do. You see, if you are not compelled or drawn to this unity that we're going to talk about today, then maybe you, you don't believe the things that have been talked about in the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's urging us while calling us alongside himself to walk. This is the next step to take. If you believe this, here's what actions follow. He urges them to walk. Walking in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even now, um, it, it just refers to your, how you live your life, how you live your, your daily life. Um, you can... Um, it's just the, the kind of normal routine of living. That's what walk means. So he's saying, walk, live out your life. This is not a special thing to do at certain times of your Christian life where you're being super religious, super fervent, super spiritual. No, this is supposed to be as normal to you as, as walking, as going out. Or, you know, in Southern California, you probably drive more than you walk, right? But it's just that dailiness to it. This is the next normal, average, daily thing for you to do if you believe these great, big, glorious truths about who you are and who God is. What do you do? You walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is live up to what you are. This is not... Um, the, the analogy of worthy imagines a scale, like an old scale. I don't know if uh, they, they have you do this in elementary school anymore, but if you remember those old balances where you have a weight on one side and the thing that you're trying to weigh on the other, so you got a you know, 50 kilogram weight or whatever on one side, and then you keep piling stuff on this side, and when they are equal, that means you know that this amount is, weighs 50 kilograms or whatever it is. So that is the idea, an equal balance, an equal scale. One thing on one side and one on the other. So what are the two things on the scale in this verse? Well, on one side you have your calling, and the other side you have your walk, how you live actually your daily life. And so the calling which, with which you've been called, remember, there's a focus here. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, on God's work, God's call. What does God's call encompass? He chose us. He predestined us, according to Ephesians 1. He saved us, even though we were yet sinners. He made us his workmanship, in Ephesians 2. He called us to be one people. We are now united with those who are very different from us, a point that we're going to reiterate in just a moment. But we are together, this new creation in Christ, something that, uh, that, that hasn't been seen before, this new person in Jesus. Those are all things that we've been called to. The focus is God doing this, God placing us here, God making us his family. That calling to connect, to connect with that balance uh, analogy is weighty and hefty. If your calling was small, 
then your walk can be small. If this was really just about, you know, talk the talk, you know, walk the walk, well, what if you don't know a whole lot? What if you don't really have a, a deep theology and you don't want to? Well, then now, now you got an excuse. Have a very, you know, shallow walk in the Lord. But that's not what this is saying. There is something on the scale, the massive weight of our calling in Christ. And this is a calling that all of us have equally. Paul isn't trying to suggest that there are, are as, a, as a different calling per se in this general Christian sense. There's obviously a different calling for you if you're a husband or uh, if you're a wife or a student or, you know, those kinds of specific things which you're going to talk about in the, in the book of Ephesians. But here we're talking about a very general thing that you're called as a Christian. That's something we all have on the scale. Boom. And now you need a walk to measure up to that, to match up to it. I, I think when we think about even just the way Paul phrases this introduction, arguably to chapter 4, but perhaps even to the rest or the end of the book of Ephesians, we have to understand that the Christian life isn't about do's and don'ts, keeping a list. Legalism has no place. You live as a Christian because that's what you are. Paul isn't telling chihuahuas to fly. He isn't urging dolphins to make honey like a bee. Those are things outside of the nature of those creatures. You don't expect them to do those things. Now you tell a golden retriever to go fetch, but really that's in the nature of the dog. You're just encouraging them urging them to do it, parakaleo-ing them to do it. But it's in their nature, it's in their capability, it's in their desire to do that. Telling a Christian to love people, to keep from sin, to read the Bible, those are commands, but they are also part of the nature of what Christians do or are made for. Sometimes we're reluctant, sure. Sometimes we get distracted, yes. Sometimes you do want to do something else, but being told to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is only reminding us how glorious and wonderful our status is. It's, it's that, it's, it's the weight of it is what it is, regardless of what I think about it, but sometimes you don't think about the weight of your calling, and so your walk doesn't match up to it. But we need to be reminded of the weightiness of the calling, how glorious and beautiful it is that we are children of God, that we are saints, that we are co-heirs with Christ, as our memory verse has been reminding us. We need to live it out. We need to actually be what we are. And if you don't have any desire to be what you are, if you have no desire to fetch the ball, maybe you're not a golden retriever. If you don't really have a desire to go to church, read the Bible, to pursue holiness, to share the gospel, maybe you're just not a Christian, would be more the implication. Now, for most of us here, I think, we just, we, we do get distracted. And here's one, something to think about. This is for you to think about in terms of an application. What hinders you from seeing or believing the weight of this calling with which you've been called? Is it lies that you're listening to about who you are and what we are? Is it um, that there are things that you see you'd like to do that if you were to get on the scale at all, you know you'd come woefully short? Is it shame or embarrassment? You don't even want to talk about you know, the, the, the calling because you know it's going to bring up things about your life that you're not particularly proud of. That's something to consider for yourself. The weight of that calling is there, whether you like it or not, if you're a Christian. And if you need a reminder of that calling, read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 again. But that's where we must begin in our, uh, in our discourse through the rest of the book of Ephesians, because everything is going to sort of come back to that, is why do we act the way we do as a wife and, and husband? Why do we act the way we do as a children and parents and all of these different roles that we have as, as a, a boss and employee or slave and master is the, um, 
is the context of uh, Paul's time. What is all of that? It's in that role that you have. You have a walk to walk that is worthy of the calling that God has called you with, wherever you are. So that's where we must begin. What are the essentials of walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called? Paul continues, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the body in the bond of peace. I went on the men's walk yesterday, which was a really great time of fellowship. I, I think we'll do it again sometime soon, but uh, I forgot my water bottle on there. Now, when you go hiking a lot, you start to realize some things are essential for having a good experience, um, even to make it to the end of the hike, right? You, you need water, you need good shoes or sandals, um, sunscreen, a hat if it's sunny, layers if it's cold, a map if it's a longer hike or through some uh, unfamiliar terrain, flashlight, just in case. Most of all, you need a good attitude, right? Those are all essentials for having a good walk. Paul lays out the essentials for having a successful spiritual walk here. And remember all of the theological lessons of chapter 2 and chapter 3, especially, especially Jews and Gentiles coming together as one people of God, in a glorious display of God's mercy and love, it's no surprise that the primary calling here is for unity. And with that, them, these virtues of humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance with each other. Humility, in, in the classical Greek, was actually word, remember the this English Bibles, they're translations of the Greek text. So the Greek word um, that's being translated with uh, uh, all humility, um, it actually was used as an insulting term, derogatory term. A person that couldn't understand, you know, complex subjects or think deeply, and so they were only really qualified and capable of doing the lowliest, most demeaning jobs, slave jobs. Yeah, that's what the word meant at, at, in classical Greek. But the word came to be embraced by Christians, of all people, sort of redeeming it. Paul uses the word five times in his letters, and the idea seems to be that, just as Jesus said, the least, or who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The least of all and the servant of all. Or this word, humility, the one with, true humility. And so it became a Christian virtue and not an insult. It's an attitude towards others at its root. The ability to think of others as more important than yourselves. In Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Paul writes, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's not a blank check, as if you don't ever take care of your own business or have your own time and responsibilities, that you, you must always be at the beck and call of other people. That's not Paul's point there in Philippians 2. It, it means not that other people can impose on you. That's not the point of that passage, to give other people a blank check. It's to give you an attitude that when you think through your day, your time, your money, your relationships, you're thinking in a way about how to serve others. It's not about neglecting yourself to serve others. It's just when you think about your plans, when you think about your day, when you think about what you're going to do tomorrow, somewhere in there, you also think about other people that might need some help or some love from you. Again, it's not a blank check that you say, oh, Paul said that you need to put my interests above your own. So I'm asking you to do this. That's not how this works. This is an attitude you have, not one you impose on others. 
I get people ask me about that a lot because it seems like you just have to, you know, you basically are everyone's slave. No, no, no. It's an attitude that you have in your own heart. And certainly Jesus knew how to balance and juggle this. He was a great servant, of course. But he also took time to eat and drink. He took time away from people to pray and have personal fellowship with the Lord. So it's not as if he was constantly at everyone's beck and call too. But this is a Christian virtue to have, to have the lowliest mindset, which simply means that you think other people are worth thinking about. Other people are worth considering in the equation of how you walk, how you live your life. Secondly, the word gentleness as I told the kids earlier, so I'm going to repeat myself a little bit here. Uh, but this is actually one of my favorite words in the New Testament, at least as far as Christian virtue, virtues and character is concerned. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean soft or a pushover. It means, again, choosing to be weak. At times, choosing to be soft. Sometimes even choosing to be a pushover. And I, again, imagine a strong man great big guy who can bench press 500 pounds, delicately holding an injured bird, caring for it, not, not, not crushing it with his strength, but choosing to deal with a delicate situation delicately. Yes, he could, if he's not careful, you know, destroy this, this tiny bird. But because of his self-control and his compassion, he's able to, to handle this you know, injured bird very gently. I mean, God is stronger than the strongest man. He's omnipotent, which means all-powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. If he wanted to, he could deal with us and crush us with his knowledge of who we are, the sins we've committed, the, the thoughts we have. He could just crush us constantly, we're in a position where he could crush us. But instead, he, the one that commands the sun and the moon and the stars, who doesn't owe us anything, the one who can bring his wrath at any time upon us, he chooses to deal with us very gently. I mean, if you're in here and you're drawing breath, God is being very gracious and handling you even more delicately than our strong man with the injured bird. That's the point of a of broken reed he will not break. Is the gentleness of God. To be gentle with others is to know, yes, you could be righteously indignant at someone's shortcomings and failures and sins. But it's a choice we make to instead show restraint. Do you want to know the most surprising place, in my opinion, Paul brings up this word gentleness. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. This is Paul's last letter. He's writing it to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's essentially passing on the mantle. Paul is again in prison, but it's not in the same way that he is in prison when he's writing the book of Ephesians. This imprisonment will almost surely is almost surely the one that leads to his martyrdom. He's going to be beheaded for his faith. He's going to talk very frankly about false teachers and the harm that other so-called believers have, have done upon him at the end of the letter. So he's, he knows that what's coming are uh, wolves coming amongst the sheep, false teachers that are going to deceive. And yet he says this in 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God perhaps may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul is saying that his opponents, his theological opponents, Timothy will now have to deal with. But Timothy, when you deal with them, Got to deal with them patiently and gently. That is shocking because it seems like, well, yeah, I can imagine treating my friends that I like 
very gently. I'm not going to blow them up every time they do something I don't like or they're annoying. I love them, so I'm going to do this. But Paul even says that with those who are hostile to you, hostile to your, um, your teaching, for them even to be corrected, patiently enduring with them, correcting them with gentleness. That's surprising to me. It seems like it's a really in thing these days to, to, to match the hostility of the world with like a Christianized version of that hostility. And uh, to, to use that, use passages like, you know, Jesus making a whip of cords and driving out, you know, the, the money changers in the temple, like the one time where he did that. Uh, no, he did that twice. I'm sorry. Um, but that's something he did, let's say, in the temple. That's something he did with Jewish people. Uh, that's, that's like, a, if you would be okay with me doing that here. That's not how Jesus treated people outside of the Jewish culture and tradition. Um, what we see is almost the opposite in terms of the epistles and in terms of the, the New Testament and the church in the New Testament. Paul frequently tells us to have this kind of attitude with others, even with our enemies. No, you don't match hostility with hostility, antagonism with antagonism. You don't match anger with anger. You do the opposite. You show them a lot of kindness and love in the hopes that they might repent. Humility and gentleness here like shoes, good shoes on a walk. It's, you, you're, you're stepping on them. You're, you're, you know, it's the idea of being stepped on and uh, and yet everybody knows if you are, you know, if you do a lot of hiking or running or any kind of a military, that it's all about your shoes. It's all about the footwear. Well, if Christians wear humility and gentleness, you'll get far, far, far in your walk. We choose to respond. It, it doesn't make it right. Let me say that. When someone treats you poorly. Or unjustly. It doesn't make them right just because you treat them kindly. It doesn't mean you're saying that you did the right thing. Please keep treating me like a doormat. No, no, no. It's just what you, it's what we do though. We aren't victims. We aren't weak-minded. We are choosing to serve and respond with grace. So uh, if you're going to be a doormat, at least be able to say, well, I'm choosing to be a doormat. I don't have to be, but I'm going to choose to be for your sake. I mean, sometimes you do got to let people know that. You know, I think you're completely, totally wrong. And, and uh, maybe I should just completely disown you and disavow you from my life. Because I love Jesus, I'm still going to love you. So if you're going to trample on me, just know I'm doing it for the Lord because I love you. This goes right along with another characteristic, patience, in Ephesians 4. It's, a, again, Greek word here. It tells its own picture. It's made up of two words. Two words are makros and now, macros or macro means long, and we see that word in English sometimes, long, macro. Um, and thumos means wrath, long wrath. Now, it, it, it's essentially the opposite of having a short fuse or short temper, right? This is having a long fuse before the dynamite explodes. Uh, being patient doesn't mean you're good at waiting around, but you're good at waiting around when nothing seems to be going right and people are actively trying to make you upset. So having a long fuse means there's, there's things going on that, that, that are setting you off, so to speak, but you're choosing to have a long fuse about it. Patience is not just about you know, waiting in a waiting room for, you know, for your appointment at the DMV, so to speak. It's when the, everything is going against you. Or maybe you've had that kind of experience at the DMV. They tell you, you wait, you get into the line, you get to the front, they tell you to wait in another line, and then uh, someone's, uh, you know, trying to talk to you that smells bad, and, you know, it just starts to get worse and worse and worse. Like, that's more it than just sitting and waiting. Specifically, <laughs> sorry, it's been a long time since I've been to the DMV because everything's online now, but I'm starting to remember all those <laughs> torturous experiences. Specifically, the patients here is referring to people and not situations, like dealing with difficult situations. There, the Bible's full of that too, but specifically here, we're talking about dealing with people because it says bearing with one another in love. 
So yes, maybe you're in a bad circumstance, you lost your job, um, you find out you have a health issue, there's a slab leak at the house. Those are circumstances that you patiently endure until that situation is resolved. But you can't really do a whole lot about it. You gotta wait for the plumber, you gotta wait for the doctor to get back to, at you, you gotta, you gotta just keep applying until you get the job. Those are circumstances. When it comes to being patient with people, there's, a, there's a, an attitude here of choosing to bear with them in love. Now, love in the Bible, it's rarely ever described as an emotion. As most of us probably would call love an emotion, the Bible wouldn't. In the Bible, it is an action and attitude that seeks the benefit of others as a source of joy for yourself. So there is an emotion to it, you might say, but it's in seeing other people um, doing well. And this means that, that patience is a commitment and a duty to others who are annoying, frustrating, even sinning against you and causing you suffering. You need to bear with them at the level of a conviction and obligation and genuine care for the other person. This is love. In other words, it's very, oh, it's very tempting to choose to not be patient with someone, to feel very free to say, oh, you've annoyed me? I'm just going to not deal with you. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to avoid you. You see, you, that, that's not what this command or the, these um, attitudes are about. When it says that, you know, you need to patiently bear with one another in love, what does that entail except an expectation Paul has that you need to continue to deal with, talk to, work with, be united with this person. God's plan is not that you would avoid difficult people that stretch your patience. It's to take it upon yourself intentionally to do rightly by them. Romans 15, 1 and 2. Romans 15, 1 and 2, Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You have an obligation. If you're a weak Christian, if you're an immature Christian, you bail on people as soon as it gets hard. But if you think you're a strong Christian, a mature Christian, you've been going to church for 20, 30, 40 years, you've professed faith, then you have an obligation to put up with the weak, those who are intentionally, unintentionally causing you suffering, those in their immaturity or hurting you or, the, or others. You have an obligation. You have a commitment to make, to bear with another person. Or as one anonymous person, Anonymous writer said, to become long-suffering, one has to be long-bothered. And so you are making a commitment to be long-bothered by people. <laughs> it's tempting to write off patience as a virtue to grow in. But understand that God doesn't show us the kind of patience that ignores annoying, frustrating people. He doesn't separate himself from us or ignore us when we're vexing him. He actively, every day, deals with our extremely frustrating shortcomings and failures without becoming frustrated. In fact, 2 Peter 3.15 tells us this glorious truth. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Paul was shown great patience by God. Paul was being very frustrating to, to, to the church, 
and to God. Not that God's plans are ever frustrated, but here he is going around persecuting Christians. But God did not just say, you know what? I don't work with people that, um, that annoy me, that bother me, that, that don't say things the way I say them. So I'm going to use someone else that I'm more like. No, he shows us a patience that saves the one that is being patiently endured. You aren't being patient if you just avoid people that you don't like or if you leave. I mean, I, I'm talking like people leave churches because they, have, they don't like one person at the church. I've seen it happen. They got a problem with like one person at the church and it's like, well, I, I'm going to, like, that's weak. <laughs> that's immature. And I guess you need to find a place where you're going to mature up because that is not, you who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, all of this is very, 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 very hard. I get it. I mean, I, 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 I was, the reason we're taking a long time on this is because, you know, as I, as I read through this, I'm thinking, man, I used to be a patient person. What happened? I used to be kind of gentle, but now I, you know, I, I feel like I, I choose to just be like gruff and ornery all the time. Um, I, I, I'm very much like struggling with these very qualities and characteristics, and I think, why did it come so much more easily in, uh, in like college or when I was young and, and single? Well, it's because I basically just hung around people that were like me, and then I could avoid people that I didn't like. I didn't have to forbear them. I could just, you know, not hang out with them. But as I got into a, a good church here at ICC, I started to realize, no, you can't do that. As I got married and had kids, I certainly just can't, you know, not deal with them if I'm frustrated with them. I realized I'm not super humble or gentle or patient or willing to bear with people. So I get it. I'm not going to be up here and say I'm the uh, pinnacle of, of all these characteristics. Um, but instead, Paul is also aware of, of our failings and shortcomings. And he's going to unfold this. We're going to do this next part kind of fast, but it's sort of the introduction to next time together. Um, Paul knows that we need the spirit, and Paul knows that we need spiritual gifts, including, as we'll see, uh, apostles and, and pastors and things. So he's going to give gifts. God knows, Paul knows that, you know, you, you tell someone to be patient and gentle and humble, that's going to be a tall order. We need help. And so the, the Spirit walks with us. That's why he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in verse 3. Again, the point of these attitudes is, is, is that theme of walking worthy of our calling, um, but again, remember, God is calling all kinds of people together. Now, I know we've been using the main categories of Jews and Gentiles because as far as Paul's concerned, that's the most extreme, like opposite ends of kinds of people that could be brought together, Jews and Gentiles. But, you know, now that's not as big a deal, but in ICC, God is calling all kinds of people together, very diverse group, not only of Jews and Gentiles, but you have um, boomers and Zoomers here. You have the tech savvy and the Luddites who shun all technology. You have first generation Americans and generations who've long been in America. You have people from different backgrounds and cultures here. And this is all very, very good. I mean, God calls all, that's a point. God calls all kinds of people into his family. But what happens when all these kinds of very different people get together? Well, they approach things differently. They have different priorities, different preconceptions. We offend each other in the gap of not knowing what the other person is like because they grew up a different way than we did. So we start offending people. That means that a lot of gentleness, humility, patience is required. Now, the fact is, again, we are one. All the Christians here at ICC identifying as ICC and, and with, with the pastors uh, here as the ones overseeing you, ICC, we are one, whatever you think about it. 
Whether we act like we're one is a different question. That's what Paul is trying to say. And so he reminds us that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That what unites us is his spirit and not just our common interests or common um, setting in Southern California. Uh, last week, we talked about the Father seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. And I mentioned how, you know, worshiping in spirit and truth, it didn't mean worshiping in the Holy Spirit and truth, but worshiping in our spirit, our being, and in truth. But I don't mean to say that you can worship without the Holy Spirit because you can't be a Christian with the Holy Spirit indwelling you without the Holy Spirit. And the only way that you can worship in your spirit is if the Holy Spirit has enabled you to. Or John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the Holy Spirit is spirit. So we don't even have a spirit to worship in spirit and in truth apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. In the same way, you can't have the qualities of humility, gentleness, patience. You can't pursue unity without the Holy Spirit because that is what the Holy Spirit is. It is a spirit of unity. Unity in what ways? Well, that's what we'll talk about next time. But the short answer is that the Spirit unites us with God and with each other. Believers past, present, future. We're united in our destiny, in our calling. The Spirit's thing, its whole thing, is to bring us together with ourselves and then together with God. United with each other, united with Him. And so by being eager to maintain it, Paul is again using this motivational language to say this is a necessary effort, a hard one, but a worthwhile one. Now, I love that statement, the bond of peace, unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The word bond is a blending, again in the Greek, of two words. It's the word with, like together with, and chains like prison chains. It's cooperative imprisonment. We're in this together. We're stuck together. Uh, I like the idea sometimes of, you know what a three-legged race is? It's when you get a partner and you tie your middle legs together and you got to run to the finish line. Well, we're all three-legged raced together <laughs> in a big, long line. I, I think I've joked around about this. I'd love to try this one day. We find the big old Phil in Irvine, and just all of us string out in a long line, and with all our legs tied to each other, and see if we can make it, you know, 10 feet without falling over. Just a, a great image. But that's kind of the idea here. <laughs> We're chained together. What would be the natural tendency when you're chained together with someone? Well, you, you, you get annoyed with each other. You bicker and fight. You're sharing too much of the same space. You move over there. I'm, I'm trying to go over here. But this is a bond of peace, which is so confusing because chains inhibit freedom. Chains tend to be something you'd complain about and you don't like. But this is a chain of peace. It, it's, it's just the opposite. Whether you like it or not or think it or not, there are invisible chains linking us all together. Those chains aren't intended to cause us to get agitated with each other. They're there to force us to deal with each other, love each other, serve each other. If I don't have that bond of peace, I will just bail on you as soon as it gets hard. I don't want to deal with this anymore. But God is saying, you have to imagine that you are bound to these people. So the sooner that you get to a cooperation and a peace between you, the better it will be. So he's forcing us to deal with our own heart and selfishness and sin. I don't want to accommodate you. I don't want to listen to you. But if we're chained together, we got to communicate. We need to figure something out. We need to make an arrangement here. That's what the church is. I, I mean, I've also joked about, you know, uh, one of these days while in the middle of service, just having um, deacons like lock all the doors from the outside and forcing everyone in here to get to know each other. Forcing each other, if there's any conflicts, we're just going to wait until everyone is at peace with each other, right? No one's got anything against each other, and then you can go out. I'm not going to do that, right, physically, 
But understand, that is spiritually the truth. That's what he's saying. Spiritually, this is true. And you are not going to have that peace and that unity apart from the Holy Spirit. Because that's what's going to, well, that's what's supposed to be kind of like connecting us is the Holy Spirit is in you, it's in me. I have the calling of God, you have the calling of God. We should be able to find peace and unity through this. Because the flip side is this. The flip side, if you, if you don't believe that or think that way, here's the flip side. This is what you got to be willing to say. I can only love people that are like me. I'm not willing to deal with anyone that, doesn't, that isn't like me. It gets kind of disgusting because you're basically saying, I can only really love me. And I only want to. Love me. There's something about that that just, as I was thinking about it, it's it's sort of gross to say and to think. Like, how could anyone be that self-absorbed? But that's what we're saying when we say we don't want to deal with other people. They annoy us, so I'm just going to avoid them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to deal with it. I hear that all the time. Um, People, you know, annoyed with me. Don't want to tell me because I'm I'm pastor. Don't want to tell me what's bothering them. I I don't I not even to give me a chance, you know, to 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 make peace or explain or to show you love or for you to show me love. It just nope. He's you know he's doing something I don't like. It's totally within his rights to do something I don't like. But I'm just going to ignore him or I'm going to go, you know, someplace else where people are less annoying. I suppose. That's not how unity is supposed to work. That's not the bonds of peace. That's self-love. If we get to choose who belongs here, we won't be challenged to love, forgive, work together. Likewise, if we only go to uh, you know, churches based on comfort and how much everyone there is like me, that's also like saying, I, I can only be in a church of people that are easy to love. Is your love going to grow when you just are loving people like yourself and that are easy to love? I'm glad God didn't do that because there's no one. Now, I'm not saying, having said that, you need to find the most opposite people (laughs) and hardest to love people. Just find the worst church, find the worst person in the church (laughs) to love but maybe it does. Maybe it does. Maybe you should be the one to reach out the person you think is the hardest to deal with. And not say, you know, I think you're the worst person here, so I'm going to choose to love you. No, but because, uh, you know, someone is going to come up to you. If we, if we make that like a, a blanket thing, <laughs> you know, don't be surprised if someone comes up to you and says, you know. I was really convicted by what Pastor Uri said, so you are definitely the most annoying person here, so I'm going to choose to love you. I mean, it's, it's different, right? I mean, it's, it's not going to be like one person. There's not like one person here everyone's thinking of right now. I doubt it. I doubt it. We're all thinking of different people. <laughs> that's a good part, though. I mean, that, that, that's what we're about. And again, I'm not saying you go to the person and say, you know, you're the most annoying person that, that I know. But if there was a conflict... Address it. You know, I, you know what, Pastor Uri, uh, what Pastor Uri brought up made me realize that I've been holding this grudge against you for five months, five years, 50 years. I, it's okay. Make it, make it right. Th- that's okay. If it's just someone in your own mind, that person's just existing, and for some reason you've got the story in your head that this is a terrible person, um, Start taking steps to get to know the person and really find out for sure if they're that annoying. And if they are, then help that poor brother or sister. They probably don't know that they're being super annoying and not nice to be around. Some people are oblivious because everyone has done that, is treated in that way. You knew people in school like that? Be the one then that goes out and, and helps them and says, you know, I don't know, maybe it would be a good idea to shower because <laughs> no one wants to be around because you smell. Or, I mean, that's a kind thing. It's a loving thing. I mean, that's a silly example. But if it's like, you know, you, you kind of put off like an 
you know, I, 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 I see that you don't have a, a lot of friends here. You know, take them out to lunch. You don't have to just go for the throat the first time you, you talk with them. You know, um, you are just an arrogant jerk, and I don't want to have anything. You know, no one, no one likes you. You know, no, I mean, get, get to know people and love them as they truly are. I mean, we've got enough fluff going on in the world. The last place where we need a lot of fluff is Sunday morning when we're with each other. You got a problem with someone? Love them enough to say, okay, I've been meaning to say this. It's been bothering me for a while, but blah, blah, blah. I, I, and I, I'm not trying to, I, I want to love you, so I'm not saying this because I, I hate your guts or I don't want anything to do with you. It just, I mean, I realized it was bugging me. Can we talk about it? Can we go to lunch? That's all we're talking about here. That kind of humility, gentleness, patience. I know I'm going long on this, but God is wanting to unite very different people together to demonstrate something glorious about himself. And it's this, that he saves all kinds of sinners. When Jesus died on the cross for sinners, he deliberately died for people that are very annoying and frustrating, for people that are enemies of God, traitors and rebels, for people who, you know, who are not the smartest, not the, the wisest, not the most powerful. He deliberately chose to do that and committed himself to that. He didn't just go to the people easy to love, the most like Jesus or anything. That is how we're being called to love as well. That is going to be the source of unity, is that commitment to have the same attitude that God himself has and that the Holy Spirit is trying to work out in our lives. So we're going to continue on to that next time we're together and talk more about unity. But I, I pray that um, you're challenged and encouraged this morning to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I, I know that I'm, I'm preaching to myself here that it's much easier to shy away. It's much easier to say, well, other people should do that, but